Uh, thank you, John. Um, I'll, with an with a, uh, introduction like that, I always feel a little intimidated. Uh, thank you, yes, that would be great. This is good, because now I have the place to put my brains out in front of me. Got up this morning and had a, a near heart attack. Um, I wrote my notes out very carefully on a couple sheets of paper, and then I put them forward like this, face down, and went to bed. I got up this morning, having forgotten that, and I walk out in the kitchen and it's blank. <laughs> what happened to all the words? And you know, part of you instantly says, Lord, is this a message? Like, you don't want me to say what I was going to say? Or did somebody steal my words off this page? You know, you start thinking paranoid thoughts, you know? Um, but no, I just ah, was relieved and delivered by a thought. Turn the paper over. And they appeared. So this is all important. I want to read the passage for today, which is from John, the Gospel of John chapter 5, because of its central importance to what we're doing today. Um, and just so you know, after church, um, I will be in the library. If you don't know where the library is, go to where all the room with all the books that almost nobody reads. Um, but I'll be there. And uh, people want to discuss, talk, ask questions, or get the big handout. Um, you know, being a, a former teacher, everything's got to be in a handout, and everything's got to be run off. Um, so that the students don't have to say at the end of it all, uh, what was that you just said? Is that going to be on the exam? Um, those kinds of questions as a teacher make your heart sink, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I did it. And um, be happy to discuss it more because this is a challenging chapter. You know, we think of Jesus and we pray as these songs all wear. Did you notice how prayerful they were? You know? Um, that's what I like about this. This is prayer. This is where you're talking about speaking the name of Jesus. Not always as Jesus, work in power, but Jesus, I need you. I need you. I don't need your principles. I don't need your management style. I don't need your little biographical background notes on life in Palestine in the first century. It's you I need in this situation because I'm out of gas. I'm lost. It's dark. The addictions I have are like God to me which means they're idols, which means that without you, I'm in the dark. There's nowhere to go, nothing to see. You know, that Bartimaeus, this wonderful blind man in Jericho, Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want to see. And Jesus says, that's the right answer. And Bartimaeus gets up and follows Jesus down the road. When Jesus gives you sight, you have no choice but to follow. That's why Mark 10 has my life verse in it. I want to see. And boy, have I seen more than I ever dreamed of. But here we have Jesus on Sabbath. Now, that always makes me ask questions. It's a teacher in me to turn everything into a question, right? So why does Jesus choose the Sabbath? Right? In you, if you want to spend your week in thinking new thoughts, and hearing Jesus in a new way, go to every passage in the Gospels where the Sabbath is mentioned and watch out because Jesus uses the Sabbath for special teaching. It's when Jesus is most nakedly plain about who he is. The Sabbath's discourses, as they're called, that's 
means Jesus is teaching, he's discoursing. When he's doing that, he's actually saying, if you don't understand everything else I did, pay attention, because I'm going to tell you what it means, and you will have to choose. I will be telling you who I am. And that will tell you your faith, what level of faith you have. So look up the Sabbath discourses, because this is a big one. It's a deep one. And it starts, of course, with a stupendous act of power. Jesus picks the hardest day to do any work. Because you can get, you know, a habitual Sabbath breaker had an appointment with a stoning committee in the first century. If you were known to be a habitual Sabbath breaker, you were a blot on your country and your people and you had to be erased. Now, not only that, he picks one of the hardest places to work. <clears throat> the pool of Bethesda is known as the house of mercy. That's what it means. Jesus walks into the house of mercy on the one day you're not supposed to heal and picks the hardest case at the pool. The man has been there 38 years. Um, obviously, there's nothing to do with how much faith you have to get healed. Because this guy gives no indication of faith. If anything, he's got excuses. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Well, nobody gives me a chance. So I don't even think about it anymore. I just lie here in misery. I'm the worst case. And everyone says, yeah, he's the worst case. He's been here so long, we're sick of him. He hasn't moved, literally, in years. And Jesus says, well, pick up your mat. Which, as David explained last night, is not some cozy little bedroll you can roll up and stick under your back. It's more like a camp bed. You pick it up and walk, which means you're whapping people behind you as you're dodging people in front of you to get through the crowd. Because it is a crowd. It's so big that Jesus can just quietly step into the back and disappear in the crowd. So, Jesus, you have raised the stakes to an impossible level of difficulty. You know how athletes in Olympics sometimes take up jumps or dives or gymnastics and there's a degree of difficulty in the scoring? I once, believe it or not, was an athlete and I had to watch that degree of difficulty carefully because the higher the degree of difficulty, the greater the score for achieving the the jump or the pole vault. I was a pole vaulter. Um, you know, all those things are there. And degree of difficulty is the degree of mastery. This is the highest mastery you can claim. On the one day you're not supposed to do this stuff, Jesus does it. And does it without any show. There's no ritual, no incantation, no great prayer that other healers would have used, or magicians, because there were magicians out there. I will speak the Tetragrammatron. I will speak the four great letters that no one is to pronounce. And if I do it the right way, forward or backwards, the magic will work. Jesus walks away from that. He forswears all that. Doesn't say anything. Do you want to get well? Well, pick up your bed and go. It's like a drive-by healing. You know? And, and he obeys. First sign of faith is obedience, right? He tries. And what happens? He gets up, walks off of his bed, and the place is in tumult. What has just happened here? The toughest case, the most obscure and strange disease, probably the result of some terrible sin he committed. That was the usual explanation. If anything went wrong in your life, some sin you must have committed, you know, um, 
I used to think that myself. Every time something went wrong, I'm a beekeeper's son, which means every time I got stung by a bee, which could happen 11 to 14 times a day working for my dad, the first temptation is, oh, what do I do to deserve this? You know, um, and the answer, of course, is having been stung, I probably said something in prayer that didn't sound prayerful. But you see, the problem with that is that kind of thinking misses the point entirely. Because what happens here is this is Jesus taking the marker of the covenant with the nation and deconstructing it. Remember Moses, who gave us the Ten Commandments? More importantly, gave them the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath holy. Has anybody learned that as a child? Remember the Sabbath, King James. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Right? Probably not that way, because not too many people use the King James anymore. But remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Remember the days when your parents would serve you cold food on Sunday? Because cooking was work. If you're a Presbyterian, you know what I'm talking about. Especially if you're a farm Presbyterian. The trick was to cook it all up the night before. Right? There's mom in the kitchen at 8 o'clock at night cooking the porridge. It's a holy dish for us Scotsmen. You know, um, well, you know, uh, besides the Vichyssois soup, the cold soup we're having at lunch, there's this question, we don't even light a fire on Sunday. And how many hay crops harvested and sitting out in the field are going to get rained on on a Sunday because your Presbyterians and your Baptists aren't going to gather it in on the day when it's not raining. They'll have to wait till Monday when it is raining to gather it in, well, or not, because that would be work. Well, here, in this time, the list of Sabbath-breaking rituals that could corrupt the Sabbath are huge. One of the most notorious ones was healing. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Say the Pharisees. These are the Jews, by the way. When John says the Jews, he doesn't mean every person. It's not an anti-Semitic comment. He's saying the leaders who are fault-finding with Jesus. It's a select group of powerful, educated fault-finders. I call them the Holy Righteousness Brigade, the HRB. They wear black. They walk around like this, establishing holy righteousness. And there's a brigade of them, right? They seem to be everywhere. Well, they go for Jesus here. They're like piranhas. They focus on this man because he deserves to die. A holy day for a holy people. I've heard that said myself because for many Canadians of around the First World War, the one mark of a Christian neighbor, nation we didn't have a temple, of course. We didn't have a holy book, although we used the Bible quite a bit. We called the Sunday, the Lord's Day, as the one national mark that we are a Christian nation. That's why there was so much fuss over working on Sunday that there was even a law passed federally in 1906, I believe, called the Lord's Day Act. It was a federal offense to do any work beyond certain necessities. In fact, the rule was act of mercy or act of necessity. Those were the two excuses we could use to do something on a Sunday. That all changed, of course, in the 70s and 80s. Now Sundays are like any other day. But 
That's the point. To be a holy nation, you had to have a holy day, and that was Sabbath. And in Israel, in, in Palestine, in Jesus' day, to break that habitually invited a stoning. The highest people of the highest principle of the highest level of righteousness had a right to take you down because we, as they would say, have a law. After all, if we don't do this, Messiah will never come. Remember, one of the key foundation thoughts of a Pharisee is that if we don't purify the nation first, the Lord's anointed will not come. The Messiah is to be earned by our efforts. And anyone who breaks the Sabbath is holding off that day that we've wanted for so long. He's preventing it from happening. You see how important that is? You are impeding the sovereign will and you are polluting the nation with your disobedience. Messiah cannot come. If you can't break your habit of breaking the Sabbath, we will break you. God does not like it if we don't keep the Sabbath properly. You can see some of the ancestors of the rabbis shaking their finger. We can see fathers in the house, maybe mothers. God does not like it. Imagine having a yenta after you, a Jewish mother. God does not like it if we break the Sabbath. So if you don't keep it perfectly, we will make you. Who says that, eh? Who would say that? Someone in authority. Now, in some cultures, that's dad. You know, I'll make you listen. Others, it's mothers. I'll make you listen, but it won't be the same way. But the bottom line is, it's a power authority judgment that is meant to coerce holiness. And if you don't understand, we will fence it with regulations so detailed that you can't break it unless you don't want to. And that is the grounds to destroy you. Got that? I'm going to start at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews' leaders persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work doing his work to this very day and I too am working. Now, this is the holy hand grenade, right? It's like that little rabbit that looks harmless but kills knights. This is the little thing, that little statement that throws everything even deeper into confusion. You healed and now you say, oh, guess what? I'm doing his work. For this reason, the Jews tried out hard to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling his God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. King James English, verily, verily. But you know how he might have said it today? As God is my witness. As God is my witness 
The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now you can hear the robes being rent in that crowd of Pharisees at this blasphemy. God strike you dead, Jesus, for what you just said. And you put it on the authority of God. You said, as God is my witness, this is who I am. And they're waiting for the lightning bolt. They're waiting for the disease that will waste them from within. They're waiting for the song of the owl, which is the announcement of doom. I tell you the truth. As God is my witness, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. Now you hear that phrase again. John loves that phrase of Jesus. He uses it again in his first letter. To be crossing from death to life. To believe is to cross over. I tell you the truth. The time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You mean the general resurrection? Yes. I mean the general resurrection. You're going to pronounce the general resurrection? As a matter of fact, I will. For as a father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Now, a couple things there. Son of God, okay. Son of man, are you familiar with that phrase? You hear it a lot. Do you know where it comes from? Book of Daniel. It's a prophetic statement. Daniel 7. One like the Son of Man will deal with the evil, will be the prophetic answer and the person of power who sets everything on earth straight. Now, at this point, you can see why Jesus has literally signed his own death warrant or said words that can never be taken back. So, you know, how did he say it? I always want to know that. It's like that question, why does he always use the Sabbath to, to do this kind of thing? And the answer is, the Sabbath is when he says, I will disclose who I really am because you who are the most critical are lined up against me and I will make no concession to your feelings. Jesus has two approaches to people that question him. To someone who's hurting, to someone who's, who's really wanting an answer, like the woman at the well, to someone who's not playing head games with him, Jesus is accommodating, he's gentle, he's kind, he's clear. 
He's the Jesus we all want to know. But if you're finding fault, if you're defying, if you hate Jesus, how's he going to address you? Same way? Christians I find interesting. I mean, I, John talks about the fact that I, I take a confrontational attitude sometimes. Well, that's partly because Jesus does. You see him saying this stuff with that gentle, mild voice that would call the little lambs to him? Or is he speaking tersely? To the point. Stand up, pay attention. I'm not going to repeat myself. Or if I do, you will be sorry. For I am the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. I have declared him my Father. I do his work. Do you have any real questions? Will you believe? Now, for, it's, for us who are in church and have been in church all of our life, I mean, I was going to church before I could think. I was baptized by a military chaplain um, as a child. Um, I, I was raised in a Presbyterian community that saw everything under the ordinance or the election of God, who was sovereign in all parts of our life. I, I sort of never had a day when I didn't know in my head that Jesus was the Son of God, and that meant he was Lord on earth and in heaven, and that God was supreme. I fought it for about seven years. I didn't like it. I was a rebel, you know. Jesus, go, leave me alone. What do you want? Go away. Lay off. Until eventually it sunk home that what I'd learned was right, and what I was doing was wrong. At some point... And I don't think it was because Jesus was calling me like a dove, you know, cooing to me to come. I think it was because one day sitting in church, I knew. And one day listening to a lady who was doing a backyard Bible club, bless her heart, we used to send 17-year-olds out across Ontario with their own car to have Bible clubs for kids in people's backyards. They'd show you the wordless book. Have you heard of the wordless book? different colors for our states of our soul, black, red, white, gold. You couldn't do that now. Somebody, somewhere, would grab a cell phone and call the police. Having a backyard Bible club is like walking into some place with kids with an 8K47 now. It's just unacceptable. But we did that in the 60s. And it put it all together for me that day. And I knew that what I had felt in church was there for me. The deliverance of trusting in Jesus. What I also learned was I was going to spend the rest of my life figuring out what that meant. As you can tell, it's taken a while. Judging by the color of my hair, I still haven't got it quite right yet. Um, you can maybe judge the day that I die, I might have finished the course. You know, at that point, God might say, oh, finally, you know, I don't know. But I mean, what Jesus is saying here is, we are not kidding. This is the real truth. And you have been in the culture that knew about me, heard about me, have prophesied about me for 2,000 years, and I come and you don't listen. I mean, the tragedy of Mark, the gospel writer, and of John is that Jesus comes to his own and his own do not receive him. And in fact, in the meantime, 
You've taken my holy day, given by my father through Moses, and you've ruined it. You've made it sinful to heal. You've made it sinful to take care of people. You've fenced off the house of mercy and made it a contest. And in the meantime, anyone who lifts a finger, any doctor who lifts a scalpel, any nurse who lifts a bedpan, they lift a lot more important stuff now, any of that is a sin against the Almighty and a blot on our holy nation. And Jesus says, how could you? Who do you think we are? Say the Jewish leaders. And Jesus says, yes, who do you think you are? As God is my witness, this is my day. I chose that moment at Bethesda myself to show you my father's purpose. Get it? And by the way, this was Passover, the Feast of Liberation, the day that we ended our slavery, and you're binding people with Sabbath laws. There are other places, and as you read through, you'll find almost every time there's a Sabbath, Jesus gets in trouble, which is not a great track record for someone who's supposed to be the Lord's anointed. You take the holy day and you pervert it, you flip it upside down, you say, we've been getting it wrong since Moses. And um, the answer is, pay attention. No, they say, we have a law. You can see it like a debate. Here's, we have a law, we have a nation, we have a culture, we have a history, we have a fear. We have a fear that someday we'll discover that we messed up and he will not come and maybe we're already being judged. So we will have no tolerance for anything. It's a zero tolerance culture. And Jesus says, no, your law poisons my father's grace. You can't get more clear than that. Jesus says, I give you the real law. Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Right? As God is my witness, that's about as strong as you can put it. Right? If I say that and I'm wrong, I'm blaspheming. If Jesus says it and he's wrong, there's another third reason to put stones in people's hands. See what I mean? There are five ways you should, on this day of all days, see Jesus as Lord. I give you the real law. And they say, how dare you? And Jesus says, nope, how dare you? You want to see what work is on Sabbath? You want to see what his work is? Yeah, show us. Watch my father. Well, how do we do that? Jesus says, watch me. Just watch me. Now, the big question, of course, is, is this a whole Sanhedrin gathering? Has Jesus attracted 60 or 70 Pharisees and other elders and rulers of the, of the law before him? Maybe he was hauled off. We don't know. 
context suggests it was kind of informal, but maybe not. This may have been a formal trial that, once again, Jesus walks away from because they're afraid. But to speak this way, you've got to know you're the son of God because you've got authority. You're calm, but you're terse. And by the way, the Father is showing me what to do. Greater things will come. The Father and I will give life back to the dead. And they say, yeah, right, sure. You mean at the general resurrection? Actually, you know, he does it before that. Anybody here met Lazarus? You know, it's interesting. He's walking around after the crucifixion. That's why people wanted to kill him. Here's someone who was raised from the dead by this man, as he said he would. And the Father has given judgment to me, so you will bow to me. When you disrespect me, you disrespect my Father in heaven. And as God is my witness, to believe me is to have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, where does that come from? It's the lesser known part of John 3.16, right? John 3.17. Nicodemus says, what are you doing here? I said, well, God sent me as the son. Which means, by the way, it's too early to expect me to condemn See, with, with Nicodemus, there's a little bit of impatience. You know, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't get it? But there's also a sense of appeal here. You a teacher, you should know this. Know it now. Which is why Nicodemus probably becomes a, a believer. He turns up in all the right places for a believer. And he does the last thing he can do for his Savior. He gives him his tomb. Here, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So we have here... Jesus approaching someone for what they need and dealing with critics for what they need. A sharp dose of reality. Stand up when I'm talking to you because this is important and if you don't get it, you're missing it entirely. And as God is my witness, well, if you don't have enough faith, you won't get it. If you won't believe me, well, you believe John the Baptist. You loved him. You ran out to the city. You ran out by the Jordan. You ran out places. Because he was a burning light and you loved that. Why? You wanted to cozy up to that light because it was warm and bright. And it gave you hope. Because you thought it was what you wanted. It promised what you thought you needed. You came and you used John for your purposes and you dropped him like a hot potato as soon as he went into jail. And then you come to me. Well, that's okay. Because you're like sheep that don't have a shepherd. I understand that. I can deal with sheep that don't have a shepherd. It's my job. But for you that came out to show how you could try to use him, you missed it. John said who I was. What did John say to the four? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, this passage where Jesus is laying it out, all these verses come back to me. They all come back. Let them come back to you as well. And you saw me use the power the way God wants it used. 
And you won't believe his chosen one now when he uses it? And by the way, don't give Moses to me. <laughs> you know, there's a joke told um, that sometime a bunch of rabbis were sitting in the temple and they said, boy, you should have been here yesterday, Simon. There was this kid. He was only about 12 years old, but he talked as if he wrote the law and the prophets. Well, he did. Jesus in the temple is only teaching them what they already knew and they can't believe a 12-year-old can speak like that. Which, of course, is understandable if you don't believe he is the Son of God. Jesus says, you want to quote Moses to me? You left Moses behind about 500 regulations ago. And by the way, Moses wrote about me. Now, that's a tricky one. You have to go back to Deuteronomy, not Exodus. But in Deuteronomy, Moses, in his last great sermon, Deuteronomy 18, 18.18, by the way, easy to remember. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, the Lord says. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. You quote Moses to me? You quote your Moses to me? Are you serious? Moses wrote about me. How can you be so blind? So who has the unbelief here? Now, by the way, this is not just an academic study. I'm reading this to myself. I'm traveling in this scene. I'm listening to this discourse as if I was a Pharisee, because I have been. I'm probably one of the better ones, because I know all the rules, right? Or I've heard all the rules. Sometimes I've even tried to keep them. Ask Carol. There was one time when I was a really unloving Christian geek. In other words, a jerk. I could quote and define grace. I didn't have a lot of it. <laughs> I knew all the rules. And that was the trap. To know all the rules and think you've got something. And then, partly because of what Carol said in those days, I realized I missed the point. To define grace but not feel it? How lost can you be? And that was me. So look at this. I'm going to make a list of the things Jesus does on Sabbath. First of all, healing. In John 9, it's coming, a blind man. Mark 2, they pick grain. Mark 3, remember the man in the shriveled hand in the synagogue? Another place of mercy. The woman crippled for 18 years, that's in Luke 18. And the man with dropsy in 14. In other words, a work that God does not rest from on Sabbath is healing. God doesn't rest. He doesn't sit around. You know, he wouldn't even play with Lego because he's lifting something to play with Lego. No. God's work is healing on Sabbath. His work is sustaining the universe on Sabbath. He visits judgment on Sabbath. And Jesus has just brought judgment visitation to his critics. 
And to anyone else who's listening and saying, gosh, could it be me? Do I have to look again at how I do Sabbath? Do I see it as a, something I earn by keeping? Do I think of it as something that doesn't matter anymore because that was then, this is now? Do I miss the point of what Sabbath is? If I was a doctor, do I cease to practice? Jesus will later say, you pull an ox out of a ditch when it falls in. It won't let me heal. You won't heal on my day. Grace. So this is what's happened when you follow the false God, the God of rules, the God of things, the God of power and conformity, the God of fear. Jesus has been wrestling with that his whole time on earth, right? You guys are afraid to love my father and here I am showing you how. And you won't even love me. What is the problem? And the answer seems to be that they're blind. You know, their faith is veiled. They can't see for looking. It's like when you leave your notes upside down. And you come back and think, oh, God has abandoned me. And he says, no, Duff, turn it over. You know, but that's the point. Jesus is rocking the world and saying, get with it. Everything you've read has to be read through my eyes. And that comes from my Father in heaven. Do you take it seriously enough to let it set you free? And then Jesus walks away. He's in their power. Maybe there were even some hands with stones. That's why I think they couldn't be in the Sanhedrin. It was probably outside. And Jesus just walks away because they are still afraid. He'll do it again. I am Lord of the Sabbath. So, okay, Duff, that's nice. How do we apply it? And I have to ask, how do we apply it? I can tell you how I apply it, but that may not be any use to you. The question is, Jesus, I've just had you tell me who you are. Together, we have gathered around and we've explored and had demonstrated for us five ways that Jesus is Lord. And we also know that if we ask each other, most of us have some way of that same experience. Or we wouldn't be here, right? I'm here because my mother made me. Okay, well, that'll do. It worked for me for a few years, but it's not really going to work in the long run. You know, it's kind of like the guy in the Marines. What are you doing here, son? I'm here because my mother made me. Well, good for her. But you're not a man yet. We'll make a man out of you. Give me 50, you know? But Jesus is saying, I'm here because my father sent me for you. I'm not here by accident. I came as part of the plan to turn this world from spinning on itself and spinning on other people. And you should know you were the people that my father set out to do this, first of all. And you've missed it. You've made it so exclusive that a foreigner can't even come into my temple. You've made it so exclusive that you can't even heal people who are sick. 
Take food to people who need it. Pick up your bed and walk if you're lying there, you know, leaning for Jesus. You know the hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms? Have you ever got it wrong? Leaning for Jesus. You know, putting your butt prints in the sand, as we say, when you won't move, when you won't try, when you're afraid to. Now, Jesus is good with fear. What's his other favorite expression? Don't be afraid. If you're afraid today to do something you've never done before that Jesus would want you to do, well, how do I know? He doesn't talk to me. Yes, he does. He talks to you here. He says, what gives life? We sang the songs, right? What gives life in the darkness? Who is great? Who says, don't miss the boat here? I come for mercy. I come for grace, not for rules, not for fear, not for barriers, not for paralysis. Was that man psychologically paralyzed? Was his sin radical unbelief that he couldn't get well? I've seen that radical unbelief. I dwell with it. I dwelt upon it. It was all around me. Still is, actually, even though I don't teach there anymore. The unbelief is everywhere. Is that the message today? Ask yourself. Not in any, you know, oh, I hate myself. I would, you know, no, we're not asking you to become publicans here and beat yourself up and that makes your prayer better. I'm asking you to take a measure of yourself as an adult, as Paul says, and say, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid of the kind of faith that gets up and walks? Am I afraid of the kind of faith that says things you'd never thought you'd ever say to your family, your wife, people you work with, to God himself? Have you got a fear of God? Boy, I was so afraid of him. I was running. Lay off, Jesus. Why do you want me? I'm doing the rules. Didn't work. I can tell you that now. You couldn't have convince me of that without his help. Are you needing his help to let go of the unforgivable sin that you can't let yourself let go of? Because somehow if you let go of that sin, you feel like I've lost the only way I can please him by beating myself up for that thing I did or that thought I had or that whatever. Because most of us you know, we build a kind of a negotiated arrangement with God. You know, we, we have our ways. I have my ways. You have a law. I have a law. We'll find a middle ground. Or we say, it's too hard. I'm going to make you a category in my mind. And everything that doesn't fit, I'll just kind of overlook. You know? Or I'm broken. Jesus, you dropped me. I trusted you. You carried me this far and then you dropped me. My career failed. I flunked my comps. I lost that baby. I lost that person that I could have had a life with because I followed you and no one else has come along to take that place. Business failed. I have an incurable disease. My spouse has an incurable disease. The son who I raised worked so hard to grow up to be a man died in a fire. What was that for? The life unrealized, cut short. 
The reason I spend my time with the military is because so many of them know that when they're ordered to, their life could be cut off in a minute. They live the unlimited liability. They could die at a word. And I, I, I mean, I've studied it for so long, it's almost, it overwhelms me sometimes. And here we are living in a world where really, if we're really careless or really stupid or, or really disobedient, otherwise it almost never happens now. Which is the better? I don't know. I just know that what Jesus says is, come with me now. Come with me now, and I will make you new. I will write you a new life. And you say, I don't want a new life. I just barely got this one under control. I have a law. And Jesus says, that's the point. I have a law. And it will give you paradise. Lord Jesus, you take these Sabbaths to tell us who you are. You make promises, you connect with your Father, and you show us to connect with you is to connect with the Lord of the universe. Give us the faith and the vision to ever seek that. And if we fail or get confused or, or drop the ball or lose our focus, send us memory. Send us people. Send us your word. Send us the verses that bring you to life again in us. For now and until the day dawns that has no night. We pray in your name. Amen.